So last week we talked about thanksgiving from the perspective of Job. And we talked about how thanksgiving is a condition of your heart and it shouldn't be dependent on, on, um, on everything that you have. And I raised the question, would you still be thankful if everything that you were thankful for started disappearing? And so in, in Job's life, we saw that he continued to praise God and we saw that he continued to worship God and we saw that he didn't curse God despite the fact that these things that made him such a blessed man were being taken away. This week, we're going to continue talking about Thanksgiving from a little bit, little different perspective. Uh, it's actually, this is where Thanksgiving and Christmas kind of cross blend and they, they kind of turn into the same thing. They, they overlap here for a little while. And I'm not talking about Thanksgiving, the holiday, obviously. It's Thanksgiving, the condition of our heart. The nativity story that we most often hear includes shepherds, angels. Uh, it includes uh, kings. It includes the magi. It includes a, a, an innkeeper who has a terrible reputation <laughs> as not having any room for Jesus to be born in. I guess you could at least say that the innkeeper was honest, right? I mean, a lot of us act like we got room for Jesus and then just crowd him out. Ooh, sorry. <laughs> it's true, though. You got the little drummer boy who probably wasn't really there at all. Pa-pa-pa humming. But there are a couple other significant people in the nativity story that we don't often include. They're certainly not on your nativity set on the, on the hearth at home. Uh, we have, uh, we have uh, two people, Simeon, who we're going to touch on briefly. And then we have Anna, the prophetess. And that's who we're going to look at today as a model of thanksgiving. And that's the person whose life we're going to look at. Um, but while we see Anna in the story, and she seems to be the main character in this account, she's not actually the big idea. The big idea or the main point of this passage is Jesus. It always is and it always has been. All of Scripture is actually all about Jesus. It's all about the heart and the mind of God being expressed to us in the written word. And so it's, it's not really about Samson. Though God uses Samson. It's not about King David, though God uses King David. It's not about Deborah, but God uses Deborah. Or Esther, but God uses Esther. Are you with me? And when we begin to understand Scripture this way, it really begun, begins to come alive. And then even in suffering, we can see God's purposes being worked out instead of just suffering. Because otherwise, things are vanity. So we have... Uh, we have Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus, and they're coming up to the temple to dedicate Jesus or to present him to the temple and for Mary to go through her purification rite. And they're about to be interrupted. The way God loves to interrupt us the most, and that's with other people. Right? They're faithfully fulfilling the law. They're following the commands of God, and they're like, okay, so, it, so it, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, but at 31 days, you're able to, you take your son, your firstborn son, and you present, oh, no, no, I'm getting ahead. I'm, Just a minute. There were three things that had to happen in the life of a firstborn son. The, the, well, actually, it's three things that have to happen in the life of a son, but the first one is circumcision. That happens at eight days. Won't go into a whole lot of details there, but that's a, 
That's a great, uh, it's, it's how people were set aside for God. And God gets at the very heart of a man's identity really early in life. And so they were going to look very different than everybody else who lived at that time. And they, so they were marked at an early age, set apart for God, for the purposes of God, so that they could serve God. And then at 31 days, uh, they could go to the temple and celebrate Pajun uh, Haben. I probably butchered it. Can you put it, put it up there? Do you have that? Um, which means redemption of the firstborn son. So clearly you would only do it for the firstborn son. This is a ceremony where the dad would go to the temple and symbolically redeem or purchase their son. Um, every tribe in Israel, of which there are 12, had a, had a specific function or duty in the presence of God. They were given roles. And so you have the Levites, those were the priests, and you have like the Judah, which is the ruling tribe. And um, in this ceremony, the dad would go and go through this ceremony with a priest to basically redeem his son from the, the role of full-time ministry because that was given to the Levites, right? So everybody who wasn't a Levite would go through this process where they'd redeem their son. And it was only five shekels, but it goes something like this. They would bring their son, and the priest would be like, so uh, do you want these five shekels or your son? And it's like, my son, right? It's a pretty easy choice. It's very a symbolic one, but it's a command that was given in Numbers that they, that they followed even to this time. And so they would have gone through the ceremony with Jesus because he was of the tribe of Judah and he wasn't a Levite. The irony lost on everybody in this moment is that while Joseph and Mary came to redeem their son, their son had come to redeem all of mankind. And I kind of want to stop preaching there. Because we really need to understand that while we feel like we bring something to Jesus and we've done something for Jesus, he's really done everything for us. And Joseph and Mary were going through this and following this and being obedient to this, not understanding fully that Jesus would actually redeem them with his whole life just 33 years from then. On the 40th day, they would actually make a, a sacrifice on behalf of Mary. Now, we've, now, we, now either the, the sacrifice, Mary would have already been, had, would have already done this. So they're either on day 40 or day 41 because Mary was with Joseph at the temple. You tracking? Um, the reason Mary's sacrifice would have had to happen first is because due to the childbirth and everything that comes with it, Mary was considered to be ceremonial unclean, which means she couldn't participate in any con uh, congregational religious ceremony. Uh, being ceremonially unclean isn't really about, it's not about degradation or humiliation. It's not about pushing her down or being like, oh, she, she did an awful thing. She did an amazing thing in giving birth. She did an extraordinary thing in, 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 in giving birth and, and every mother who's done so before and since has done an extraordinary thing. Participating in the gift of life in that way is, is unrivaled in everything else that we do, isn't it? But um, so it's not about humiliation. It's, it's really about God saying, you can't just approach me any way you want to. And I think that's easy to forget sometimes that we can't just approach God any way 
we want to just because we want to. And it's so easy to lose sight of that because, you know, you've seen somebody curse God and God didn't strike them dead on the spot. Or let's bring it in even closer. You've cursed God maybe and God didn't strike you dead on the spot. Maybe you didn't curse God, but maybe you've sinned. Maybe, right? (laughs) Awkward. Maybe you've sinned. Maybe you've sinned against God on purpose. I know it's not just the pastor. Maybe, here, let's, let's talk about how we do that. Maybe it's that you've gone, God, I'll, I'll repent later. Anybody done one of those? All of us on Thursday. <laughs> right? Like, oh, I shouldn't eat this much, but I'm gonna. Right? But we step into this thing and we step into this attitude, into this place where we rebel against God's purposes and God's plan and God's heart for us. And we do it so easily. But we can't approach, and we can't just turn from that and then approach God and be like, now take me because I'm great. God's like, I'm holy. And you need to be holy. It's amazing to me in the midst of these laws and in the law about uh, cleanliness um, after childbirth is in Leviticus 12 verses two through eight. And you, you, could, you could read about it and just see that you're supposed to bring a, a lamb or doves or pigeons. A lamb would be if you had the resources to do it. Joseph and Mary only brought pigeons or doves. And so that tells us a little bit something about their financial situation. The Magi wouldn't come with, their, with the gold frankincense of myrrh for another couple of years. So they didn't actually show up when Jesus was a little baby still in the manger. They showed up when Jesus was like a two-year-old running around. So they presented their gifts to like a two- or a three-year-old, not, not to a baby. Still in a significant, still a significant moment. And we will have a baby in our nativity scene just because that's what we expect, right? But we see that God demands to be approached a certain way. And because he is loving and because he is holy and because he's merciful, he created a way for people to approach him. And the way for people to approach him was that something had to die in their place. And that's the whole sacrificial system. That's where somebody could sacrifice certain things for certain kinds of sin. I know I'd be all out of animals. And be like, there goes David again, right? Walking down the street, you know, with my cow. And they'd be like, man, he had a rough week, you know? Like, yeah, like, but we get to come in and take communion together next week because Christ's blood was spilled for all of us forever and permanently. They had to sacrifice each time and each moment that, that they sinned and they had to be ritually clean or ceremonial, ceremonially cleansed. So here we are, Joseph and Mary, therefore the dedication of Jesus, therefore the purification and the cleansing of of Mary. And like I said, God's about to interrupt their life with Simeon and Anna. 
And this is why it's so important that we live in community with each other. It is the rare thing for God to share the truth with us by an angel or by an audible voice from the Holy Spirit. He speaks to us through his written word. He speaks to us by his Holy Spirit. But a lot of the encouragement and confirmation that I get is by the people in my life. And I know that God intends to do the same for you. And if you're living on your own, and if you're just kind of floating along and tagging in on Sunday and then disappearing into your own orbit, or if this is just where your orbit crosses with the orbit of other people, you're missing out on most of what God intends for you in terms of what it means to be a part of a local church and be a part of a body, be a part of a family. So first, these new parents would encounter Simeon. He's a man who is led to the temple by the Spirit of God at the same time as this couple. Seeing Jesus, he would immediately recognize that he was the Messiah. And he would prophesy to Jesus. He would prophesy to Mary and Joseph about the life of Jesus and what it was going to be like. And right about that same time, Anna comes on the scene. So let's jump in at Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38. It'll be on the screen for you. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And there was a widow until she, and, and was a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. These are God's words. Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. God, we thank you that you saw fit to put this account down for us, to instruct us and to guide us and to train us in righteousness. I ask that you would open our eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand what it is that you've done, what it is that you're doing, and that which you desire to do in us and through us. Amen. Just a, quick, uh, a couple quick observations about this passage, and then I want to jump into uh, a, a process that we see take place in the life of Anna in, in this passage. The first is, what is a prophet? So you see prophetess, and I just want to quickly define a prophet as someone who hears and interprets the voice of God for a people group. The role of a prophet is always to point back to God. For this reason, a lot of prophets are, are hated and despised. You see in the Old Testament, they'd come and they'd say, turn, repent, come back to God. And they're like, no, we like killing our children and murdering each other. And he's like, no, that's a bad idea. Turn back to God. And they're like, no, we like eating until we die of heart disease. And he's like, no, turn back to God. And they're like, no, we like, you know, right? You, you, get, the, you get the gist? And then the more they point back to God, the more it creates difference and the more it highlights the gap between God's passion and desire and man's passion and desires. And so obviously, instead of being like, dude, just leave us alone, they, they, they're so troubled by the voice of the prophet. They're so troubled by seeing the gap between where they are and where God is that they, that they eventually killed a lot of the prophets. 
They curse a lot of the prophets. They destroy a lot of the prophets, and they come after them hard. The same thing is, is kind of true in today's culture. You know, calling something sin is, has become a very offensive thing. It, some places they're trying to get it passed that, as law that, that sin is hate speech. And it's, that's just because we misunderstand what sin is. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we understand that, that no man is equal to God, therefore all have sinned. I mean, that's all we're saying. Nobody's equal with God. Right? And I think we could probably get agreement there. And I don't, just kind of a side note, I don't know why people are so offended by a definition or accountability to a God that they don't believe in in the first place. Right? I mean, it just, it's like, look, if I told you that, you know, so some people talk about the flying spaghetti monster. It's like a thing and they use it to make fun of Christians. But it's like, if I told you the flying spaghetti monster was going to condemn you for your sinfulness, you'd be like, oh, you're silly. You're outrageous. I have no fear of a flying spaghetti monster. If I even say the flying spaghetti monster is going to condemn you to hell for your sin, you'd be like, you're ridiculous. But if I say your sin is going to condemn you in the sight of a holy God, and that as you continue to stay in this lifestyle, you're choosing hell for all eternity, that's offensive. Because our spirit knows the truth. Our spirit knows the truth. And we have to work hard to suppress that truth. We have to work very hard to suppress the truth of the righteousness of God. We have to work really hard to suppress the truth of our sinfulness and our rebellion against that righteous and holy God. You're like, this is Christmas sermons. But because of a prophet's message, uh, they're often ridiculed or outcast from society. That doesn't mean you have to be that way. You know, you can, you know, like don't strive to be a cool Christian because you'll pull all your punches. Right? Just try to be a Christian Christian, like a disciple Christian, one that's willing to to share the truth, but seasoned with with grace and mercy. I found that as I've, I've learned how to be gracious, I'm able to have conversations about sin with people that don't end with fisticuffs, right? It's not ending with not, you know, blows. But we can have a conversation about sin and righteousness and we, we all leave kind of like, okay, with, with understanding. We all leave with, with, with more understanding than when we came into the conversation with. And she was waiting for the redemption of Israel. They talk about the, regen- or the redemption of Jerusalem. They talk about that in just a moment. But God had always, so God created man with a purpose and a destiny. He had desires for mankind. He had purpose for mankind. Man sins, man sins. And God says, I'm going to make you my people. My purpose is still the same. And I'm going to accomplish it. And to accomplish it, I'm going to send my Messiah to make you my people. Once again, 
So generation after generation after generation, they're looking forward to it. But they, as, as they're looking forward to this Messiah coming to make everything right, they're, they're taken into captivity, and then they come back, and they think they've made it. And then they're taken into captivity, and then, right? And back and forth, and back and forth as they're obedient and disobedient, and obedient and disobedient, and obedient, right? That sin cycle, you guys are familiar with it. Right? Feel bad about the effects of our sin. Turn to God. Feel good that God's accepted us. Feel comfortable that God's accepted us. And he's, then decide that he's accepted us primarily because we're good. And then we get really comfortable and confident. And then we, then we sin again. And then we feel bad. And then we're like, oh, I don't like feeling bad. I'm going to go back to God. And then we're like, God, you make me feel good. And then we go, God, you make me feel good because I'm good. Thanks for that. And then we're like, I'm so good. I deserve that. Oh, I sinned and I feel bad again. Right? You guys know that cycle, right? I know it. Uh, so they see that, but they're longing. And generation to generation to generation, there's this promise of a Messiah that was going to come and deliver them. And they called that the redemption of Jerusalem. And so they were looking forward to this thing. So now, what did we see in the life of Anna? Now, a couple of the things we don't actually see happen in this account, but we know happened because of the account. The first thing that happened is she received a word. She heard a message that the Messiah was going to come and there was going to be redemption for the people of Israel. There was going to be redemption for Jerusalem. But she didn't just hear it. She, she heard it and received it and made it her own. For anybody who's ever played a sport, the most important thing about receiving a pass is that, or, or catching a pass and running is that first you have to receive it and then you run. Yeah. Right? Because like, what happens if you don't receive it and then run is it hits you in the back of the head or it hits your hands and you're turning so fast it just bounces off your hands. Right. You with me? Right. And so what she did is she heard the message and she received the message and then she carried the message as her own. You've heard the gospel, maybe. You've heard that God has a plan and a purpose for your life. You've heard that the only way to know God is through his son, Jesus Christ. You've heard that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that all should repent and call Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior and his blood will cover your sins. You've heard it, but have you received it and made it yours? Without receiving it, it's, it's, it lacks power for you but not for the person that does. And that's how when two people can hear the same message, one receives it and is changed, one doesn't receive it and is unchanged. I was talking with somebody this morning. The difference between the person that receives it and doesn't receive it isn't always visible in the beginning. It may never come visible in this lifetime. But every once in a while, you start to see the cracks and the wheels start to come off a little bit. You see the wheels come off in relationship. You see the wheels start to come off in, in, in their character and in their integrity. You see the wheels start to come off when things don't go the way that they expect it to go. You realize that they were holding everything together the best that they could, but they weren't trusting God to hold it together for them. I just know it so well because that's what I've done for so long. So when her husband passed away, after only seven years of marriage, she decided to devote her life to this message. Now, it's interesting to me that she's defined by her father. We don't know who her husband is. 
I don't know if that's because she received this primarily from her father and that's the primary way that she was defined. Gentlemen, you will be the primary definer of your children. That's why our, our, our nation is in such hurt. Several years ago, 40% of children were being born to unwed mothers. Without daddy being the primary definer of the child, who's left to define? So gentlemen, anywhere you see a child that lacks that definition, please step up and help define them. Don't just step in and smack them. Cultivate them. When you see a single mother struggling to, to rein in her, her eight-year-old boy, step in and help. You don't just have to be a biological father to make a huge difference and bring definition. I had a neighbor. Yeah. I think we've got single moms, and I, I think they would say, please help me. I had a neighbor who was like, I'm not going to define my son's religious dance. I said, that's cool. I'll do it for you. <laughs> what he didn't realize is by not defining it for his son, he was defining it for his son. And if not me, then who? A gang member? Is that what you want? You want a racist defining your son? Who do you want to define your son when God's placed you here to have something to give to him? And if you feel empty of something to give, just ask someone else who has something to give. Don't look for the best meme or the most inspiring Dr. Phil show. What's his name? He's got the radio show. Steve Harvey. Good dude, but don't, don't let Steve Harvey disciple you to disciple your children. J.C. Sherrod, Keith Temple, Jerry Hermes, my father, and then we've got a, like a whole second tier of young men who are coming up and figuring out how to raise their children in a godly way and transfer the values of the kingdom to another generation. Are you with me? Gentlemen, don't miss this. It's never too late. It's never too late. And that's one of the things we learn from Anna. How's that for a transition? <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> she was advanced in age. From this we learned that Luke is a wise man. That's right. <laughs> JC knows. She was advanced. <laughs> she wasn't old. That's right. She was advanced in age. Fine wine. Did he talk about wine and crack in the same service? She was advanced in age. She was widowed young. But at a young age, she heard a message significant enough that she received it. She dedicated her life to it. So this isn't like a two-year commitment. I love the passion of somebody who's freshly committed to Jesus. Love it. The only thing more exciting than the passion of somebody who just gives their life to Jesus is the old person who still loves Jesus. Um, the advanced age, the person of advanced age who's still in love with Jesus. Is there anything cooler than that? To see somebody who's at a, advanced in age 
And they're like, man, I've walked with God through poor times and rich times and painful times, through loss and through gain, and they still love Jesus. You know that sweetness? It just comes from being refined through the years of churning through and fighting through and trusting through. This is Anna. Says she does. She never left the temple. All the commentators say that it's not that she never left. It's just that she was there so much you couldn't tell the difference. Fasting and praying and trusting. When her husband was gone, she gave her life to this thing. Year after year, hoping that someday she'd realize the fulfillment of her desire. Or minimally, she'd die expecting it. Which isn't a loss at all. I regret a lot of things I've done in my life. I regret some of the things I've done out of passion or out of hunger, out of just being a teenager. (laughs) Stupidity, I guess. But I don't regret the things I've done out of faith. I don't regret standing and waiting for God to move. I don't regret, regret standing and waiting even now. And every once in a while, I'll, I'll get these crazy thoughts where I'm like, well, maybe I shouldn't believe, maybe I shouldn't be waiting for this. And I'm like, the alternative is boring. The alternative is lame. The alternative doesn't bring life. The alternative is just me, more of me. I've had enough of me. She endured this delay. We talked about delay last week. We talked about delay a lot, but delay, all that does is strengthen resolve. It purifies our faith. When she walked up and saw Jesus, she recognized him as a baby. She recognized him. She heard this message. She received it. She ran with it. She remained in faith and hope and expectation. And then when she saw it, she saw it for what it really was. And he hadn't done anything yet. He's a month old. Baby Jesus, and she comes up. I don't know if she heard Simeon. We don't know if she heard Simeon. But she walks up at that moment, and she realized that this little child was the fulfillment of the promise of God. This little child was going to be the one who would redeem Jerusalem. He would be He would be the one to overthrow every earthly kingdom, even though he didn't look like it. He didn't have bodyguards. His parents were poor. He didn't shine. Like I, I like my baby Jesus shining. He didn't look like a Messiah should have, but she recognized him anyway. If God spoke to you today, would you recognize it? Or are you so caught on seeing him a certain way that you would miss it? Sometimes he speaks to you through a crazy white guy. Sometimes he speaks to you through, through that person at work. 
Sometimes he'll speak to you through that family member. Sometimes he speaks to you through that person that you, you really just, you don't like them. Would you be able to recognize it? Would you be able to identify that as the Holy Spirit bringing you a message to encourage you and to inspire you? And she rejoiced. And this is that intersection I was talking about. She gave thanks. What do you do when the thing that you've been hoping for is now in front of you? It's all too easy to receive that thing and to run off again (laughs) and forget to be thankful. That's why we spend so much time with kids trying to teach them to say thank you, right? Because naturally what we do is we just take it and we run. But the reality is our kids are showing us more of how we are than we realize. David Montgomery's message, uh, offering message today, listing these things that he's thankful for. But how often do we wake up thankful for those lists? So often, the thing that's more predominant in our mind is the struggle of today, the struggle of yesterday, or the fear of tomorrow. Those are the prominent things. It's not the Thanksgiving that's the prominent thing. And so oftentimes when something comes, if we even recognize it, we we forget to say thank you. Even as I was preparing this message this week, I had been praying for healing for a certain thing in my body for, for a couple months. And it happened and I didn't even realize it. I received healing in my body last week, but it, because it was the absence of pain, I, I didn't realize that it had happened. And so what do you do when, when what you've been praying for happens? So I was at Starbucks and I just stood up and I walked around. <laughs> I went outside. I was, thank you, God. I had to stop. I had to stop for a minute. I had to walk away from my computer. I had to walk away from these things. And I had to take a moment to say, thank you, Jesus, for healing my body. For that relationship that's healing. For that relationship that's healed. For that pain that's gone away. For that hurt that's being healed. For that hurt that's, that's passed away and that you're healed from. Have you stopped to say thank you? And you know you can say thank you before it happens, too. That's a good idea. So she, she thanked God. She gave thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She expressed her thankfulness through gratitude to God And then she went and told everybody. I said retold so I could have another R. Because she told people and she told people and she told people and she told people. It's interesting to me that Anna was the first person who recognized Jesus and went and told everybody. The shepherd saw it too, but, but at the temple, she was the first person who saw it. She went and told people. Because 33 years later, it would be another woman who would be the first one to go and tell everybody that the Savior's risen. So what do we learn about this? If you want to start a movement 2,000 years ago, you don't start with a woman. Because of their place in society, you don't take a woman and say, hey, you need to go tell everybody that this is the Savior, and that's how we're going to start this movement. Did we just break something? (laughs) Just broke Christmas. (laughs) Better preach, Pastor. Pastor. 
That's what it was saying. God intentionally started with women in both of these places because he wanted to make clear that this is something that he's going to do. And he didn't need to do all the right things to do it. He would have started with the religious elite. He would have started with the kings and queens. He starts with an old widow, some guy who stopped by the temple, and a poor couple and their baby. Right? That's not who you start with. How would it be if we started a church with like an old widow <laughs> and a young couple? Go. What's Twitter? <laughs> so it's interesting to me that God uses women in both of these places, but it, but it does raise the question, what do you feel like disqualifies you from taking the message of hope to the people in your world. Because these women weren't qualified. God saw fit to use them in, in remarkable ways. So Anna told every, who, everybody who was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, I, I do believe that there was probably a community of people who were set aside because they were expecting the redemption of Jerusalem. They were expecting the Messiah to come, and they knew each other because they were all hoping together and praying together and, and fasting together. And so they had their own little network. But I think the only way that you can be sure that you get everybody who's, who's hoping for the redemption of Israel is just to go tell everybody. And then the people who are hoping for the redemption of Israel are the ones that respond. Right? Like, if you went, who wants to go with me to lunch? You know, you've ever been at the office and you're like, I want to go to lunch, but I don't want to go alone? No? Just me. Thank you, JC. Want to go to lunch? (laughs) How are you going to know who wants to go to lunch? Unless you ask someone or tell someone, hey, I'm going to lunch. Want to come? And if he says no, clearly he's not looking forward to lunch, at least with me. (laughs) And then I go to Tony, and Tony's like, yeah. (laughs) He's like, I'd love some portioned chicken (laughs) and a sweet potato and lots of water. And I'd be like, no, thanks. Then it'd be like, come on, Dan Lee, we can eat. He'd be like, yeah. Like, that's right. Chicken wings, now. Dan would say, yeah. And I'd know that he was passionate about the redemption of Jerusalem or something like that. (laughs) You follow. Right, I hope. Chicken wings aren't the redemption of Jerusalem, but it's pretty darn close. You go and you tell everybody. You never know. Some of the people I expected to be the most resistant, resistant to the gospel, some of the people I expected to be the most resistant to repentance, most resistant to Jesus, most resistant to the message of, of hope are the people who m- responded most affirmatively. Some of the people who are the hardest on the inside or the softest on the, or hardest on the outside or the softest on the inside 
Some of those that are screaming the loudest are the quietest and the most receptive. Just waiting to hear something. But we won't know unless we go tell them. So let's go tell everybody. Let's go invite everybody and let God stir people's hearts as he, see, as he sees fit. How, how would I know which neighbor is going to respond affirmatively? I can't. So I'm going to all of them. How can I know which family member is going to respond? I can't. So I tell all of them. I'm not sure that this is what Anna did, but for a woman who's been fasting and praying for most of her lifetime, with not a whole lot of time left, I'm willing to bet that's what she did. It was a Jewish grandmother. <laughs> like, did he say that? What's that even mean? During this Christmas season, it's my prayer that our, our hearts would long for the presence of Jesus in our lives with the same passion that Anna hoped for, the redemption of Israel. They had a lot of reasons to long for the redemption of Israel because they were pressed by foreign governments and they were far below the standard of life that God had created them to live in. But even in a nation where we possess great wealth, the quality of our lives is well below the standard that God desires for us to live at because it's been damaged and destroyed by the effects of sin. Sin's been stealing our lunch money. And the effects of it are waging war against the kingdom of God advancing in our lives. The only solution to this problem of sin is a life surrendered to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who's promised to forgive our sins by giving his own life. A lot of people have talked about it. How to cover sin. How to deny sin. How to work around sin. Jesus said, I'm going to die for your sin. Anna knew that. Even without saying a word. Because she had received the message of hope. She ran with it. She kept it in front of her. She realized it when it was in front of her. And now she stands as a model for us. As how to walk with Jesus. Father, we thank you.